Hi, this is Stephanie Hansen, and you're listening to The Makers of Minnesota. And usually when I'm dealing with maker podcasts, I record a couple of weeks in advance. The next podcast you're going to hear is with Scott Graydon from the New Scenic Cafe up in Duluth. I happened to be there for a festival and events conference, and it was right at the beginning of the coronavirus starting taking hold and restaurants were still open. I actually had the pleasure of dining at Scott's restaurant uh, while I was there, and it was awesome. I'd never been to New Scenic, but I'd heard about it a ton, and everybody says like it's an absolute must on your way to Duluth. So I had a chance to talk to Scott, and you'll hear that podcast next. But we recorded that episode three weeks ago, and a lot has happened in the restaurant world and just in our worlds in general. I gave Scott a call just to check in and see how things are going in light of this new world order. How you doing, Scott? Yeah, I'm doing all right. It it's seems still like full of snow up here. Okay, that's interesting too because we're starting to see signs of spring here, which I have to admit is making things a little less horrible, just because you get a little bit of getting outside and. How are, you know, you and I talked three weeks ago and I, like I said, I had dinner at your place and it was awesome. And about a week later, I think you were getting the same order that we were getting to shelter in place and to close down the restaurants. Were you surprised that that came? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, it's kind of a mixture of emotions. Um, I guess maybe not surprised, um, but definitely scared. Um, I don't think most restaurants or even hospitality, whether it's a hotel or a a marketplace um, are geared for long durations of suspension. You know, we're very cash, cash flowing style businesses. And um, so I think fear would be the more, more apropos emotion that I sensed and thought. Yeah. And a lot of you guys, your profit margins are pretty skinny to begin with. So to ask you to close down for most of the restaurant tours down here, if they had any abundance of employees or ran more than a, a rest, one restaurant, you know, they had to furlough their employees almost right away. What was your situation? Were you able to, have you been able to maintain your staff or where are you guys at currently? Well, we were unable to furlough, but what we ended up having to do is unfortunately um, let everybody go. So they had means of gathering unemployment and grateful that they still are staying intact um, in their own personal relationships as well as with the cafe and myself. So everybody is very hopeful and engaged to come back to work. But um, at that time, that was my only course of action was to to let them go so that unemployment uh, benefits could be reached sure. by them. Sure. Um, that had to be, can you tell me what that felt like? Because this has been like, you know, your life's work, this restaurant, yeah. this creating this environment. How sad was it? Very sad. I felt like I was, um, honestly, I felt like I had been raising these children and got to a point where I had to drop them off at an orphanage. It, it was, it still is difficult to process. Um, I think the um, emotional part of it is there's, there's some fortitude and continuity. And I think as most restaurateurs, it's almost a necessary ingredient to, to believe in what you're doing. And, and we do our best to gather staff and consumers to or customers to believe in what we believe. So I'm trying to infuse some new belief as we move forward. Um, it, in the beginning, the thought process was, um, you know, these are my family and my kids, and it's my responsibility to make good business decisions to keep them employed and keep their families sheltered, fed, and have a good life. And um, the unfortunate conclusion was that my resource pool um, ended in that regard. Yeah. From a creative standpoint, there's a rekindling quality um, and a wonderful outreach um, with our customer base, whether it's through 
gift certificate purchases, well wishes, even some, um, we're doing a meal kit for Easter Sunday and we've sold almost a hundred meal kits, um, in three days to go to our customers. And that's very supportive. So there's different things we're doing, but as far as your original question around how it feels, I guess the best example and metaphor is it felt like trying to raise my family and unfortunately coming to a point where I had to put them over in care of other person's hands being, being unemployment. Yeah. Um, my effort is to not stop there. It's to re rekindle and, and repurpose the resources and the brand and the values that we have and, and create a new system for work for, for my team and my family. Because when you think about, um, I, we've had this conversation with Mike Brown here locally from Travail, who was just getting ready to unveil his new restaurant that was, it's, Travail is fine dining. It's, it's a creative food circus, right? And all yep. of a sudden, A, he had to close. B, he couldn't open. C, he had to lay off his entire staff that he'd been preparing for the opening. And he has said, gee, I don't think people are going to eat like this anymore. I think this is going to be a profound shift in the way that our restaurant operates. And it sounds like you might be having some of those same kind of thoughts in terms of retooling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So friends with other chefs in the world here, um, you know, most recently, Tim, uh, or not, I'm sorry, uh, most recently, uh, Frank McClellan of L'Espelier in Boston um, came to an end of a 30-year fine dining experience. And I had the pleasure of dining there and staging and working with them. And I sent my three sous chefs out there as well um, to work with, with Frank McClellan's place. And uh, he's, he's changed the format. He closed the fine dining white linen and um, has a place called Frank now. And it's much more casual, um, more what the market wants. Uh, Tim McKee, you know, La Belle Vie. Very similar circumstance now. He's doing a marketplace um, and fishmonger and what have you. Um, and if you think about what what Travail is dealing with, you know the the performance style of cuisine that Travail was able to offer their customer base without having control over it and and having that service quality to the effort that they put forth there. You have to find a different way to do it. Um, and I think he'll do a great job um, with everything else he touches seems to be great um, for, for myself. Um, we, we have definitely more of a plated cuisine, all a minute style um, line work. Um, not a lot of food that holds for a long time. It's best right after we prepare it. Um, and that is not going to be the commonplace again. So we are excited to announce um, a repurposing retooling um, kind of going back to first principles, what do we do? Um, and we cook great food. Uh, we've built a 21-year brand um, and have a wonderful supportive following. And we just need to find a way to service um, them in a new way. And what we're, we're, what we're going to do, and we just started with um, this Easter meal kickoff, um, we're going to be doing a, a new business called uh, Mise en Place Marketplace. And it will be a combination of a meal kit style um, approach to dining and also prepared foods. And when we get through all of this um, shutdown and delivery only, my intention and hope is, is to create a brick and mortar outlet for that specific brand. But currently I have to do scenic cafe that cannot be used uh, as a restaurant, but we can still use it as a kitchen. So we will be doing all of our mise en place marketplace work right out of the new scenic cafe's facility until, until some, um, uh, health and social rules change back to a, 
able to use the scenic cafe as a restaurant. And will you have people pick it up there? Will you look for distribution partners in Duluth? Will you expand outside of Duluth? I mean, I'm sure this is all brand new, so you maybe don't even have these answers. Yeah, um, they're all points that we're considering. I would say that with the Easter meal kit that we did, um, it was a a dinner for four, four to six, and it's basically a prepackaged approach, most of it ready and warm and served in your own home. Um, we had some add-ons that you could purchase, like Alicap coffee. We had some deviled eggs and shrimp cocktail and different things that are kind of a little more classic Americana cuisine for that holiday, but things that were um, product-stable and and maybe a little more broad in, in their appeal. Um, and we sold out. Um, we put a limit um, of 90, and we're at 100 right now. So Great. Um, we. We are sold out there. As far as the distribution, we're going to do delivery and bring it right to your doorstep, have the least amount of uh, exchanges of hands. Transactions will be via the Internet, you know, so through the website and credit card purchases. And we will just uh, be calling and arranging a drop time, and there will be no physical interaction. Our staff will be masked and sanitized and um, very limited version of staff as well. Um, So that's the initial. As we grow, I think – um, we may be looking at a distribution of mailing or something of that nature, which would change a little bit of the system, uh, a little closer to like HelloFresh or Blue Apron, where you're sending the meal kits in a styrofoam box. Yeah. So we're trying to stay away from that eco component as well we, and limit both carbon footprint and, and material. If we, if we can deliver it, um, we've done some analysis, and it seems to be if we can service our immediate market, that's the best effort. Um and if we can create um, a deli uh, marketplace out of this effort and have a brick and mortar, then certain people will be able to come into it once um, once we're able to be mobile again as a community. Yeah. And you, when we were, when I was up in Duluth, you had the Airstream that's a, basically a food truck. Could you serve out of that or? Yes, we can. So we took a 1969 uh, Airstream uh, 27 footer and, we gutted it and um, redid the entire inside. It's like a spaceship cockpit. Um, it's got wonderful, everything is stainless steel. We've got a full hood and arsenal of equipment and refrigeration and, and what have you. That was intended for us to do our, our kind of, I, I guess, famous sashimi tuna tacos. And we um, were invited into the state fair, which is something we've been trying to do. And that trailer will be at the state fair, assuming that the state fair will still continue this yeah. year. Yeah. That's so to unknown too. Yeah, we're hearing rumblings, but nothing that's concrete. And yep. again, I think it kind of just depends on how all this social distancing yep. and flattening of the curve goes, right? Yep. But as far as that trailer, um, it's multifaceted. We'll use it for the the taco idea. Um, and the intention was the state fair, but maybe even having that trailer show up at local breweries, like on a schedule, like Wednesdays at one brewery, Thursdays at another and service that effort. But then also it's just a fabulous mobile kitchen for whether it's catering or what have you doing outdoor weddings or different festivals and things like that. But I think given this COVID-19 issue, that trailer will also give us some uh, mobility and flexibility around different ways of servicing uh, the community through food, um, whether it's schools, nursing homes, um, even the, I can envision doing some food, 
um, in front of the healthcare facilities for the healthcare workers. Yeah, um, I thought of you right away, Scott, because I had just been up to see you, and I thought, oh, smart timing that that truck is all ready to go, and it also keeps your footprint pretty a lot smaller. If you can find yes. ways to create revenue streams, you know, with two to four people instead of uh, the larger footprint of a restaurant. So I'm excited for what's going to come, not because it's awesome, but because I think if you get hopeful and you think about the ingenuity and the creativity, and that's one of the things I've always loved about this business, both broadcasting and just makers and chefs and food, you guys are so smart very resilient, know how to deal with adversity and whatever this looks like, I feel like you'll be one of those people that's on the front line of changing the way that we eat in Minnesota and in America, really. Thank you. Um, and I, I agree with you that one of the necessary skills is to you know work with your resources. And I think it's a, at its core is creativity. Um, so it's not just creativity from resources of food to a plate, but creativity of resources into a business form, be it offering something to a customer or supplying jobs to, to workers in the community. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to go ahead and release this podcast on Wednesday. I hope that we can promote you just as a, I felt like the whole podcast was mostly about your vision and how you saw the world and how you want to defeat it. So in that regard, it's very timely. And I thank you for being on the show, Scott. Thank you. Um, sorry if I have a somber tone, as you can imagine, many of us are trying to find a way, but uh, somewhere deep inside, there's a lot of hopefulness. And I think we're going to, we're going to pull through and we'll just have to figure out how, yeah. how, how it looks and how we get there. And I'm hearing that from a lot of uh, local folks too. You know, many of them are hanging on. We know that a few won't be able to, but something will rise and it's just a matter of giving it time, space, creativity, and air to breathe, right? Absolutely. All right. We'll talk soon, Scott. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Stephanie Hansen, and you are listening to the Makers of Minnesota, where we talk to cool people throughout the state of Minnesota doing cool things. And I am in a very cool spot this morning. I'm here right on the shores of Lake Superior up in Duluth, and I'm here with Scott Graydon from the New Scenic Cafe. He's the proprietor and executive chef. And we were introduced yesterday at an event for Minnesota festivals and events. They had their annual conference up here. And I he gave a leadership conference, which, of course, I missed like a dummy. But I was here last night for dinner. And I've heard so much about the New Scenic over the years. And I'd never actually eaten here, which a lot of people thought was surprising that I was with last night. They're like, you come up to Duluth all the time. But I'm always up here for family stuff. So it was great to slow down and spend time in your very beautiful restaurant. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Was the restaurant like this when you first came upon it or did you build it? Uh, Let's go back in time. In 1999, um, my aunt Rita and I uh, started the New Scenic Cafe, and incidentally, it was April 1st. Uh, a lot of people thought that was a hilarious April yeah. Fool's Day joke, but it was actually a real-life real, a real life experience. Um, it was once a roadside cafe, um, kind of the 1950s tiny cafe quality, 
um, two dining rooms, um, recently added bathroom facilities. They used to have outhouses. Wow. And that kind of speaks to the time where they had um, just a summer business and shut it down for the fall, winter, and spring. So um, since then, we've added on a dining room, a large kitchen facility in the back, storage, walk-in coolers and freezers. Um, and then most recently, we've added a new entryway. And then probably the most odd, or not obvious, but the most striking piece is that we added a new roof, and it tied all of those old additions together, and we recited. So it all kind of harmonizes a little yeah, bit Yeah, it's really beautifully done, and it's literally right on the scenic road looking right over the lake. Did you grow up here? Uh, I was born in Two Harbors, um, spent some time there. That's where my family and extended family are. And then from there, we moved into... Uh, Hermantown, which is a Duluth area, and then um, over to Superior, Wisconsin for a while and graduated from high school over there. Um, where did your love of cooking come in, or how did you, were you cooking as a kid with your mom or your grandma? Kind of a variety of influences. Um, my paternal grandmother, Vi, um, spent an awful lot of time in the kitchen, and I spent an awful lot of time with her. So kind of by proxy, I was there. Mm-hmm. Um She's Swedish and really embodied a lot of those values as well as flavors and such. So that's kind of where that has come from. Um, when I was growing up, my mother made the kitchen a very comfortable place to be um, from the perspective of counting potatoes or setting a table, helping clean kind of the responsible and math quality of it all. So I had quite an influence there. Uh, my parents were divorced and at a very young age, my stepfather was a traveling salesperson and spent a lot of time overseas um, doing work and came back with kind of an alchemist approach to food. And we would dabble and have different food in the kitchen. We had uh, Greek beef stefato and we had bouillabaisse and things like that growing up. That's fun. Did you get involved in cooking it or just eating it? And We were involved from beginning to end pretty, yeah. pretty regularly. Um, do you remember, I don't, a lot of moms cooked out of the Julia Child cookbook <laughs> and that was like their first introduction to glamorous food, as it were. But sounds like that wasn't your experience. No, I think my 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 grandmother cooked from from her soul and heart, if you will, and heritage. Um, my mother, I think, took more of a sustainable, keep the kids alive, give them calories mm-hmm. approach. And food is fuel. Yeah, and there was a few menu items in our household that were returning but I don't think my mom had I don't know kind of the interest to explore too far um so and that was part of her system in life she was a working mom and there was two of us full-time and then I had two stepbrothers that stayed during holidays and summers and stuff like that so we had a influx of kids mouths to feel yeah absolutely when you describe the new scenic cafe to someone what would be the words that you use? Because it's sort of, the architecture is sort of spare. It's beautiful. It's filled with light. There's lots of flowers. You have a lot of local art in here. Um, So historically, we would talk about uh, contemporary American cuisine, um, kind of pulling on the idea that there's a newness to it, um, maybe a new approach, and then pulling on multi-heritage, multi-ethnicities, and that was just kind of of the time. Uh, I think that now it's it kind of has its own personality at this point, um, like many restaurants or even chefs do. Thomas Keller of the French Laundry had defined the current food as, at least in this uh, genre of 
cuisine is personality cuisine, mm-hmm. where it's kind of the the presentation or the idea of the chef itself. And so my ideas, my interpretations of things kind of flow through onto the plate. And so I think we kind of call it maybe Northern Minnesota Scandinavian. Yeah, I think that's right. Based cuisine. on just what I ate last night, we had your Swedish meatballs were delicious. Thank I make you. a mean Swedish meatball, so I was pretty impressed. Um, also, I had scallops. We had a beautiful creme brulee that had lingonberries. There was a smoked beet uh, appetizer that was great. We had um, deviled eggs, which, you know, dill and kind of the classic presentation. All a Lutheran. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that you would bring to the church potluck. Yep. Um, it's your type of cooking is different because it's not something we see a lot. Like people will talk about Bachelor Farmer down in the cities. Where do you get your influence? Is it from the land? Is it from the ingredients that are available to you? Or are you trying to do sort of a Nordic thing? Sure. Um, so I, I um, <clears throat> how can I word this? I think that I intuit much of it. So I'm pulling from a plethora of experiences. It's not sensory focused. Something I see, something I've tasted, something I've heard of. Um, it's pulling a lot of things together and it's hard to isolate specifically where that idea, inspiration combination maybe have, has come from. Um, I think that, um, I've switched over the years. I would say in my twenties and in my thirties, um, as a young chef, the idea of my food was to be my own and do my best to fend off any inspiration from other people or chefs or cultures. Um, and then I think as I've gotten older, I've adopted more of a Charlie Munger approach. Um, I'll reference Charlie in a second. But that is um, take the best of what other people have already done and maximize that. And so from there, I think I have a little bit different approach where I'm not in search of the only thing being new that I've generated. Because there's some really wonderful basic things out there that other people have created. And as an example, I don't need to research and develop a baguette. Right. The idea here is, is take what others have developed and become experts at. And then from there, the only thing I have to do is maximize our abilities to, to meet that standard. So an example that you just mentioned was the Swedish meatballs. That's not my recipe. You know, that's where the heritage, the family, mm-hmm. all of the past comes onto the plate. So as a chef in my 20s, I would have been a million miles away from that. I would not have even come close to it because I did not create it. My values have changed. Now it's about making as good and and honoring that recipe and that heritage as best I can. Um, People often talk about our pickled beets. That's not my recipe. That's my grandmother's. And my grandmother is no longer with us here. um, So I would love to ask her if it was actually her recipe or if she got it from (laughs) someone else. And a lot of the recipes, really, I mean, they've been handed down or they're just the way you do things and then you have some spin on it. Is it um, getting more comfortable with yourself that allowed you to feel like you didn't have to make such a personal statement about every single thing on the menu? I think, yeah, I think you're onto something there. I think it's maturity, maybe. Yeah, just... maturity. Um, I, you know, the I, the other idea as a young chef, you constantly are trying to do new, and at this point, the business mentality starts to creep in where I'm looking for a return on the investment. So, if I do a food product, um, pick any item, entrees, dessert, whatever it might be, what would be the reason for me to put it on the menu and turn it off the menu in two weeks? 
that fast rotation never allows your team to really develop an understanding and help sell that, produce that in a more fluid way. So you're constantly in a state of development Mm -hmm. and you're missing out on any sense of fluidity, any sense of return on that investment or that effort. And there's a cost to not leaving it on the menu. And I think often the creative side or the hungry uh, foodie mentality is that we need to have new. Oh, it is. There's a lot new. It's just not on the menu yet. Um, and that came through years ago with the idea of wine. We used to change the wine as often as I did the food. So there was between seven and, you know, four to ten times a year, seven on an average, where we would completely wipe the slate clean and start over. And the disruptive nature of that for everybody, it was like getting a new job. Yeah. And the simple cost of it, the inventory buildup, the training side. So now we have a different approach where we kind of roll items. So it's almost like a snowball rolling down a hill, if you will. And it's letting go of certain things along the way, and it's picking up new. But it is not a full melt or a full buildup. So things have changed. You mentioned the Nordic thing. Um, I think it's important to also recognize that I did not want to be Scandinavian. So all of the Greeks... What did you want to be? Oh, anything but. You know, (laughs) the Greeks and the Italians all have fun. A Scandinavian conversation is just more of like a head nod. There's like, you would not take the time to open your mouth. Oop. Yeah, it's (laughs) just... So with that being said, I was drawn to the families that were gregarious and loving and pinching and yelling and squeezing and all of those things. And I wanted to be Italian or Greek. And it's taken me time to kind of come back to and really value the heritage of my family. And I don't know, <clears throat> I don't know why that's shifted. It's probably in line with that maturity piece. Maybe having kids too. You said you have pretty little kids. Yep, that'll do it. Um, the other thing I think is... Um, at our conference the other day that we both were at, the idea of food trends and what have you. And I think there's an overarching trend quality that speaks to this Nordic piece I'm trying to get to is um, the ancestry, DNA, the 23andMe, all of that. So when my grandmother passed away, she was the anchor in all of the, I had this ready source for anything that I need to know about my heritage and my past. She's gone. So now being... Being who I am, I have a desire to find that out. So in a way, now my grandmother is not that near for those answers and that infusion of value or family. I look all the way to Sweden, as an example. With the Ancestry.com, 23andMe work, people are hungry for that information. And part of it is the food. That's, there's, we identify a lot of our cultures around the table. So when I think about all of the food trends, it's more of the social trend and hearkening back to those places is kind of how I look at that. Yeah, because we're seeing a lot of influence of world flavors Absolutely. and more Asian, more Japanese, more African. As the melting pot gets bigger and expands, people want to know the stories behind those ingredients, those foods, where they came from, how they were prepared. Yep. Um, you mentioned that we were at this conference yesterday. You gave a whole talk on management and leadership, which, like I said, I missed, but I heard it was one of the best things that was at the conference. What is it about that that's evolved and been important for you? So now you've stepped out of the kitchen in some respects, too, and you're talking about leadership and how to be a good manager and things that, just to be candid... We don't see that a lot in the restaurant business. That's sort of an evolving thing about looking at profit margins and trying to understand where your ego is and where your business is Mm because it's different a lot of times with chefs. Right. Well, there's a lot of um, 
kind of prerequisite structural data there to to let this rest comfortably. Um, I think the chef piece is one part of my life. Uh, the restaurateur part exists. The small business person exists. Um, I went back and ended up going into academia, and um, I have a couple um, higher education degrees, higher learning degrees. Um, and the, the terminal nature of those degrees allows me to teach in, at a university. So I teach in business and finance, and I've taught at two different um, universities here in Duluth. And from there, I've also pulled in some consulting work, both with large organizations and small. Everything from expertise consulting, so whether it's being chef and organizing a flow in a kitchen and remodeling or developing a concept. But um, my work that we talked about yesterday at that conference was not in an expertise role of that nature. It was more on organizational development and even like the idea of industrial psychology. So where that comes from is when I look at this as a, as, and I'll go back into the scenic cafe as a food venue, art is just pulling known resources or known variables together and putting them in and putting them together in an interesting way. So you have the access to the same tomatoes as I do, the same beets, the same salmon. It's just a matter of putting it together in a unique way and in a unique manner. That's the appeal part. The structural part is below that. And I'm of the belief that if we keep teaching, I'm going to go into a metaphor here, if we keep teaching people how to serve a new wine or cook a new plate of food, we're missing out on something, and that is basic wine knowledge. We're missing out on culinary technique. Mm -hmm. So they are left only with the idea of memorization, almost rote-style learning. And rote has a very limiting quality to it. You can only remember things. And I use the mathematical uh, numerical um, value of pi. And a lot of people can go to 3.14. I think it's pi day today, isn't it? (laughs) Go to (laughs) 3.14159 and go on and on and on. And I think that is memorization. Then the next question is, is, well, can you apply it? Can you use pie? If I said I wanted you to divide this 10-inch cherry pie into 11 equal pieces, could you determine how to do that? More, more often than not, people like to do divisions that are equal, even like eights. It's easy to have a pie mm-hmm. and have the have and half the have and get eight. So the idea is to use those things. And we need to go almost backwards or more foundational to get there. So the conference yesterday is more in line with organizational development, um, Conscious use of self is kind of the focus point. How can you maximize where you're at? And then how do you become part of a team? Um, We focus on learning. We focus on um, how you deal with stress. Um, And then, of course, how do you learn and have outputs to gain? As I've talked to a lot of chefs and as I've talked to a lot of artists and makers throughout the course of this podcast, I've been doing it three years now, I've... It, it like dawned on me one day, like, wow, all these chefs are artists. Mm-hmm. Really? I mean, there's cooks and that's great. Everybody needs cooks. And then there's the chef aesthetic where it's almost, it is just to me the same as a painter, the same as a sculptor. The way you express your ideas, your thoughts, your creativity is really on that plate. But that tends to really creative people can have challenges too. There's mental illness a lot. There's substance abuse just because of the hours that people keep and the stress. Do you see a lot of that up here, or are you insulated from it a little bit? 
Uh, the answer has to be yes. Um, I think that it's almost a cultural piece, and you join into a group and you do what the group does. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to resist that group situation in whatever is done, whether it's gossip or which is as erosive as a, a drug issue or whatever. Um, so, yes, that's there. I would say that the Cena Cafe is an, an anomaly in sorts. I don't see it as robust or as debilitating as I have seen it in other restaurants or even other parts of the industry. And I'm not certain as I could answer the question as to why. Maybe it is is that there's a cultural quality here that does its best to not have that. I think there'd be a call out if somebody was doing meth or coke or heroin yep. or something like that. I don't think that would be allowed. Um, this group is pretty educated, pretty aware, um, well-traveled, often multilingual. So we have some people that are striving, and I think that within that, it's pretty hard to do a good job striving if you're altered. Altered. Yeah, for sure. I mean, coffee and glass of wine are probably the things I see the most. And you have really good coffee because I'm drinking it right now. It's a shout out to Elikef. I like it. Yeah. Um, I forgot about them that they're up here. That's their, I met the, her name, city girl, Aliza, Aliza. Yeah. I met and listened to her at a event and she talked about her parents yep. and how desperately she did not want to be in the coffee business with her parents. True. And then of course now she is in the coffee business with her parents. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Sometimes what we don't want is exactly what we're attracted to. Mm-hmm. When you go to the twin cities, do you get there very often? Yeah. Yes. And, uh, it, my schedule is so erratic, um, so I get there those times I can be there three times in one week, and there's times I can be there three times in a year. Are there some chefs that you admire? Yeah, of course. Um, Tim McKee, Alex Roberts. Um, yeah, I would hate to try to have a list of name dropping, but um, yeah, of course. Um, I, I just think of more the restaurant than the chef just because it's always more than the one person, as of I course, mentioned. Of course, of um, course. <clears throat> Yeah, there's there's a lot of inspiration from a lot of different people down there. If w- you have a couple of airstreams on the property here, <laughs> what's up with that? Sure. Well, one's for cooking, one's for sleeping. Um, years ago, so I, I've got some. I'm going to stop on that idea, and I'm going to answer your question with a prerequisite. Sure. I mentioned Charlie Munger. Yeah. Charlie Munger is the partner and and vice chair of Berkshire Hathaway mm-hmm. with Warren Buffett, and Charlie Munger has a book. Um, it's called Poor Charlie's Almanac, and it's a collection of his values and speeches that he's done over the years. And one of the premises around Charlie's success is that he has a, a tapestry of mental models and a tapestry of disciplines, almost like a, a network, and that's what carries his thinking. So as an example, if I'm a chef, how would it work for me to have a degree in economics? As a chef, how would it work for me to have an understanding of woodworking? Um, and we could go around the horn if I was a a, a construction person, how would it help me to be a, a, a culinary person, whether mm-hmm. it's chef or cook? And I think the premise there is, is that you learn peripheral value, whether it's creativity, building of something, um, different methods of striation or whatever it might be. So there's that prerequisite structure. So I have an interest in multiple areas and I dive pretty deeply into them. So there's a yurt behind you as well. I, I saw that. started a yurt company with a friend um, that's called Sundog Yurts. Um, Is that your company? Yeah. Oh, I know about those yurts. Yep. So we do Sundog Yurts. I have a cabin on Burnside and there's a Sundog Yurt. 
There may, on the lake. There may be. Um, so the, the whole yurt world is another example of stretching. And even the process of starting that business helped me become better at this business. Does of that course, make sense? So absolutely. Supply chain development, partnership stuff, uh, marketing, customer interaction. So all of it's there and it makes me better here. So now I'll fast forward up to your question around the Airstreams. Um, the Airstream has always been part of our interest from nostalgic, maybe style. Um, I have um, some friends that have an Airstream many years ago and uh, her name is Tia Salma, uh, Salmala, and she and her husband have one called, and they call it the Silver Cocoon, and they do <laughs> art out of it. And I love that business, and she does jewelry, and he, they're both architects, and they do wonderful things. At any rate, I was always taken by the Airstream, and that was probably my first introduction into them. Um, Rita, my um, aunt and former business partner, once had an Airstream at her house as a guest cottage, um, so there's kind of that shtick. And, you know, yes, it's a camper, but there's something that's unique about it. Similar, They're gorgeous. Similar to food. It's the yeah. same stuff. It's just put together in a unique way. So we were talking about the whole food truck and food trailer world. And 15 years ago, the idea was to have this mobile kitchen. So as a chef, we get pulled into people's backyards. We get pulled into different venues and they usually do not have a good or ample kitchen space. So the ability to have a mobile kitchen to do the work we do became a critical variable in the equation. So this there's, let's just call it Airstream one. The 27 footer is a complete mobile kitchen. Um, it's built like a boat or a cockpit. It's all stainless steel. We've got a couple of fryers. We've got a, a mirror clean Keating flat top in it. We've got um, induction burners, full hood system, coolers, um, a convection oven. It's truly a mobile kitchen. And so there's that. I'll come back to trailer number one. Trailer number two is a 32-foot, and that one actually is a camper. That has uh, three bunk bed beds in it um, and a double bed, and it has a shower and a bathroom. It has a washer and dryer, a, a refrigerator, wow. a stove, a kitchen table, air conditioning. Yeah, that's a real camper. So <clears throat> kind of apocalyptic. So if all, if all else fails, <laughs> have a place to live and a place to cook. Um, so back to trailer one. Trailer one is the flagship trailer um, for a larger effort um, that we do here, and that is the mobile kitchen. But specifically, it's for the sashimi tuna tacos that we do and that little taco is around seven percent of our revenue stream annually and that's a large number um, last year we did ninety thousand tacos out of this business here wow so we were trying to figure out how to get into the state fair mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to get into stadiums so for the last 17 years we've been priming the pump and r&ding some things and we are now going to be in the state fair this summer with our trailer. And you'll see us there with that specific trailer out there. It just needs to get polished. So that's exciting and a big announcement. It's awesome. I do a podcast out at the state fair, so I'll have to come by and visit and try the taco. Yeah, it we'll was on the you. menu here last night, but yeah. I didn't order it. Yeah. People expect it at this point. Okay. And of course, I didn't order it because I'm like, oh, I want to order all this other stuff. Um, that's really exciting. The state fair is a whole different business model. Mm -hmm. It really tests a lot of things. It tests your management skills, tests your inventory skills, your customer service. I mean, it just moves so fast and it's such a mammoth beast. 
Yeah. But that's exciting. Yeah. So will you take your other Airstream and park it in the trailer <laughs> on the fairgrounds and live there? Maybe. Yeah, might, I would think you essential. might. Yeah. <laughs> I would think you might, actually. Oh, that's super fun. I have a 1971 Dodge Explorer, X-P-L-O-R, that is very similar in that it's like a cockpit of a boat. And it's all fiberglass, and it has a shower and a toilet and a double bed and a kitchenette, and it's a van. And we drove it around for five weeks last fall. Fantastic. Yeah, it's in Reno right now, sitting there waiting for us to find it again. And uh, I think we'll get back to it this fall. But we've been... It's really cool to... Like, just driving around, that was... The whole idea of what America is really changes, I think, your mind when you get in a car or you get in a van or an Airstream and you start to travel. It was very, for me, I I am a pretty liberal person. I'm a very democratic person. We've had kind of a rancorous election. Mm -hmm. Um, Our leadership is not really my style. But it was really good for me to see, and this sounds like, I'm not explaining this right, but how people that don't think like me or seem like me politically are a lot like me in life. And it helped me to have a better sense of compassion and empathy that in, at the end of the day, really we kind of all want the same things, but we get there differently. And I had been sort of tribal in my thinking and very locked down and just driving around the country and seeing people and, you know, when we had some car trouble, the guy that came over and couldn't wait to get his hands dirty underneath the hood of the van, and then him inviting us over for a Miller Lite, you know, it was really, we just, I learned a lot more about people and that I'm as much part of the problem as part of the solution. And so I opened up myself again in a different way. And I think nothing other than travel can do that because you just see things so differently. If if you're just looking out your own front window every day, you stand tend to sort of see the same view. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm excited that you have an Airstream. They're really cool. Yeah. And thanks. stylistically, I mean, they're, you have a, a certain aesthetic here, and I can totally see that replicating in the simplicity of an Airstream. Yeah. yeah. They're beautiful. Um, when we look at just Duluth as a food town, boy, things have really emerged and changed, and there's a lot of interesting things happening up here. If you were just going to give someone a tour of some of your favorite places in Duluth, where might you spend time besides your own restaurant? Well, um, I think that every community has, you know, different interests and tiers, just like you were saying, you know, different tribal approaches. You know, Duluth um, has really had Canal Park as a kind of a hub of food. Um, They have, for what it is, they have a lot of variety down there from the Americana style restaurant. Uh, you know, you've got grandmas and you've got their affiliative restaurants with the Mexican with little Angie's Cantina and Belicio's. And then you've got a couple of the other houses like Green Mill and Old Chicago and the bigger flags that are a little more regional. Um, some of the smaller restaurants, um, there's Beijing, which is a, a um, Chinese restaurant that's unfortunately been burnt down twice and been rebuilt and now they're back up again. Um, Duluth seems to really uh, like them. Mm-hmm. There's Hanabi, which is a sushi place that's kind of on up off the first in downtown Duluth area. Um, downtown Duluth is kind of on a 30-year turn. It's starting to get some more effort put into it. I think you've got Fitker's, which is an old mm-hmm. brewery and now has a hotel and shopping center and such there. 
Um, you know, the brew house is kind of a, a, a pin within Duluth for, you know, a, a tavern style cuisine. Yep. Um, we have Lincoln Park is probably the newest development and Tom and Jamie Hansen, they've got the Duluth Grill, which is near Lincoln Park, but in Lincoln Park proper, they've invested some time and energy. They've got OMC, which is a mm-hmm. smoke, smokehouse style restaurant and a few other things going on. It was real good. Good. It was really good. And I have spent some time with him. He was at the state fair last year and I interviewed him for some things we were doing with Minnesota cooks. He's a, he's a really interesting pioneer kind of up in this region in terms of just kind of doing his own style of cooking. And he was one of the original hippies as it were up Mm -hmm. in the Duluth area over at Duluth grill. Um, so it's, it's fun to see him investing in some new areas just because I think it opens it up for, and the breweries have done a tremendous job up here Yeah, and Vicre. I mean, their, their product is amazing. Yeah. They do a really good job. Yeah, they do. So, I mean, you've got that Avenue of the larger in development. Then you've got places like Lake Avenue cafe down in canal park. You have places like Northern water smokehouse. Absolutely. And Eric Garrett down at Northern waters is, I think, possibly got the best thing going in Duluth. It's a standalone. It's unique. It's high quality. Um, well regarded. It seems as though you walk into anybody and even if you um, don't like smoked salmon, you're going to find something you love there. So he's probably the most admirable little restaurant. In it's always a stop for us. Like, yeah. cause it's hard to get in the twin cities. You can get it at common roots. Yep. Their smoked white, white fish is just amazing. Yeah. And then like you mentioned, the distilleries and the breweries, I think that's really come alive. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's that, interest and push that maybe wasn't here 10 years ago of course there was beer but not kind of the the social shtick around it where you can go in and have a beer you know years ago similar to we were talking about ancestry.com you know nobody in their right mind would have put swedish meatballs on a menu because that you have you made it at home you made it at home now home's not there because of grandma's passing so now you have to go find it at a restaurant that'll take the time to do it but i think the same thing is true about like breweries Nobody in their right mind 20 years ago would have ever believed that you can garner enough people to come and drink only your beer. People liked variety and what have you. And now people like to go to, as an example, like Ben Paddle or Black Blacklist and just sit there and the options are their different beers. There are five beers, yeah. It's interesting. I think in some ways, the this is sort of sacrilegious to say, but I think that the breweries and the distilleries have become the new church. Sure. And the new community centers for a lot of people. Very interesting, yeah. They bring their families. They bring their pets. (laughs) They spend time there on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. They play games. I just, I really look at some of these places and think, this is what our church community room or center was, you know, 40 years ago. Yeah, and I think of Dave Hoops with Hoops Brewery down in Canal Park. You know, one of the things that he he has more of the German beer garden quality and people do sit there and socialize at large, you know, over accentuated picnic table feel and they have their families. They got a play area in the back corner and people deliver in whether it's pizzas or Northern Waters smokehouse food or whatever. And it's very much uh, an open space. It's almost like a park under a roof. I had the most incredible chili ale there the other day. Oh, it was so good. I love a spicy beer, um, and they're hard to find. And when they're done well, it's like, oh, this is hot, but it's not burning my face, but it's just complex and lovely. Cool. Um, are, you've got a lot of products here that are behind you that you said 
you guys are putting together in a commercial kitchen. So things like uh, pickled beets, blueberry jams. Is that a whole part of the business that's growing or are you doing it just because you have access to these products and you are bottling and packaging the excess? Um, it's, it, it was, yeah, it's, it's not an excess, uh, capturing method. Um, we were always producing our triple berry jam here. Mm -hmm. We used to do it in Mason jars and what have you. And then it got to the point where it was, uh, the demand was high enough where we needed to consider not producing it here. So we found a commercial kitchen, rented some space and we still do. And then we launched kind of a, a wholesale initiative and effort and at the time, it felt like it was an insane amount of effort. Clearly, it was a, an entire new business. Everything from the manufacturing and the production to the distribution. The labeling, the marketing, the selling. Yeah, it All is a whole it. new business. So it, it was a really good thing. And then along the way, just like with any other business, you learn what works and what doesn't work. Um, there are certain things that seasonally work really well. We do pickled beets, and people continue to demand them. Um, I think the jam, it's pretty tough industry to compete in. You'll always have somebody that likes your jam, but it's a hard industry to compete in. Um, even on the, just from economies of scale, it's really hard to produce at a cost effective competitive. Yeah. Cause fruit's so expensive and even the packaging and just doing the volume. If you look at some of the large brands that are out there, it's difficult to compete on the price point. So mm -hmm. the only thing you can really do is compete on quality and it's a brand carrying effort as well. So some of that we do pickled crab apples. So that's a unique product in, in the, in the fall, people seem to really like that. And it mm -hmm. goes well with Christmas food. So, you know, you think about the holiday cuisine, it's a nice gift package. Do you do lingonberries too? Um, we don't do a lot of lingonberries. That's similar to the jam situation. Just yeah. it's hard to compete with it. You know, you think of Larson, um, Oh, who's another brand Felix and a few of these other brands in Ikea, they just really grab on that price point. So I, if you can think about, um, that would be an example of where we started with the idea of making my own versus finding what somebody's already done. I think I would probably do better selling Felix lingonberries than making my own right from a lot of variables out there, whether it's, you know, profitability and brand identity. What do I really want to do in this case is I want to be a steward for good products to the consumer. Like we don't make our own wine here. We don't, roast our own coffee we don't make our own baguette so all of those types of things we find other people that are great at what they do um i think about the chairs we're sitting on like i didn't make these yeah so they're beautiful that, so in these in this simple idea it's finding somebody that's already an expert in what they do and then celebrating and stewarding that quality to our customers one quick question that is striking me as i'm looking at you and your there's an elk um rack behind you caribou is it caribou? Yeah. Do you see that we'll have more like venison, caribou, elk? Do you think that we'll, as people are demanding more meat, and then at the same time the meat industry is growing like crazy, the plant-based industry is growing too, are there things that you think we'll see more of from a Nordic perspective? Yes. Um, I don't think you're going to see it as broadly. I don't think you're going to see an elk burger at McDonald's. I, or even I, rabbit. Yeah, I think you're going to start to see that people's awareness and sensitivity around um, sourcing of products and the way the animals are are handled or or the fertilizer that's used for carrots or whatever it might be. I think that that is a piece that's new. Twenty years ago, I don't recall anybody asking or caring where something was from, and now it is one of the first questions. 
So that has been a shift. So as a subset of that, some of the questions are, where is this meat from? And because often beef is so largely produced or pork, um, unless you have an answer that fits that person's value and you can identify a small farm or a quality farm or something of that nature, um, they're going to look to alternatives. And it's interesting, this is an issue that chefs have that is regulated out of our ability to give it to the customers, and that is a lot of customers would like to see things wild. You know, forged mushrooms, technically illegal in the state of Minnesota. You know, uh, it needs to go through the process of known supply chain variables mm-hmm. along the way. So foraging is, is, is an open source. There's no control on it. Similar to food, or seafood, excuse me. Um, pulling something out of the water and just you kill it, we grill it mentality, that's kind of a no-no. So the consumer wants the venison that was hunted. We can't do it as chefs. So we have to find different sources, which means it's going to be farmed. So then it goes into the quality of the farming. And giving a a, kind of a shout-out to uh, Weicker Acres, you know, Matt and um, Brian, his butcher, they're doing a really great job with it, and they're focusing on quality. And that's another example of on a larger business scale. When you focus on quality, you will always have a market share. So it's really hard to compete on costs, especially when big business has the capacity to compete on price. Yeah. If someone asks you where you get your pork and you said Hormel, they're not going to be super excited about ordering that chop. Say Weicker Acres. And it's even if you don't know Weicker Acres, there's that identifiable quality. It feels like something. That's right. Absolutely. So interesting. And I think we'll see more of that. The millennials, that is one of the trends I talked about is they really want to know where their food is coming from. And not just that it's coming from a farm or from someone that they might know in town, but they want to know, like, are they paying a livable wage? Are they offering benefits to their people? It it is going to be an interesting shift in that way. And probably like, I mean, when we look at Annie's as an example of an organic food producer that was bought by General Mills, a lot of these smaller guys will get gobbled up by the big guys and repackaged as the smaller guys again that they originally were, but now they're not, but we're not supposed to know. It's happening in beer. It's happening in some of the um, other packaged goods areas. But, well, this has been a really great conversation. Thanks for having me into dinner last night. Absolutely. I Thanks loved for it. Eating. Yeah, it was super great and it was very full. So, when you're up in the area, make sure that you hit the new Scenic Cafe. It's about 11 miles outside of town and it's a straight shot and a beautiful drive. Yep. It's right along the Scenic Highway here. It was very fun to talk to you. Thanks for participating in the conference and we'll see you in the summer. Thank you.